You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. Hey listeners, in this episode we hear from Tim Fung, CEO of Airtasker. Tim had so many great insights to share with us, we decided to split this across two different episodes. So we hope you enjoy episode one. This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace, to find a convenient parking space near your home or office. So today we're here with Tim Fung from the CEO of Airtasker. So thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me, Mike, Steve. Great to have you here and hear about your story as uh, building uh, Airtasker. I mean, Airtasker must be probably one of the biggest marketplaces, sharing hub marketplaces in Sydney or in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I think, I guess if you're like read it by like GMV and active users and those kind of traditional metrics, uh, we'd be one of the bigger ones. I'd like to think what we're doing is pretty unique globally as well. Yeah, awesome. And so when you're not being the CEO of Airtasker, what, what do you spend your time on doing? Well, I spend quite a lot of my time being the CEO of Airtasker, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm really, really enjoying that. Although I did take a break over over January to um, to like really just do things outside of Airtasker and get a bit of thinking space. How, yeah. How much time did you take off? I took off uh, a month, all of January, which is really, really awesome. good. And they actually, um, you know, my team cut me off email, cut me off Tableau, Amplitude, Slack. And I've actually been quite inspired by it because... You know, after eight years of, of, you know, grinding it out, it was so powerful to get a month to myself. And I've come back like a lot more refreshed and You energized. do look pretty relaxed, I must say. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> relaxed, but, <laughs> but energized, I think. <laughs> but yeah, outside of work. So I do a bit of karting. So I love motorsport. So I, um, I'm on the sim uh, a little bit. I do a bit of karting. And yeah, I just try to stay fit. Doing a bit of bouldering um, as well now, which is... What's, what's bouldering? Good. Bouldering is like rock climbing, but on shorter courses. So like not as high. Yeah, okay. So you don't need ropes and all that kind of thing. You just fall back onto like a mat and it's awesome. Uh, like nine degrees in Alexandria, you can kind of just go and hang out, have a latte, do a bit of climbing. It's a great way to get a, get a, get a workout in. Yeah, awesome. And so, like, I guess no one is, we don't ex- explain what Airtasker does, because I'm sure everyone knows. I mean, how long has Airtasker been around for now? Yeah, so we came up with the idea in sort of mid-2011, launched the platform in Feb 12. Um, okay. And so it's been, you know, uh, eight years now. So it's definitely been a, a pretty long journey. Yeah, cool. And I thought I'd share a, a story. Um, just last week, we started a new business called trade to You, where we're doing shredding of, of paper for businesses and also residential Anyway, we ordered some bins and I had to put the bins together. And so I always like to get my hands dirty for the first time of doing something, just to see what it's like. And I had to do it late at night, it's about 10 o'clock at night, trying to put these bins together and got to about one o'clock and I'm like, oh, this is way too hard. Okay, I now know it's, it's really hard. I need to get someone who knows what they're doing. Went home, 1.30 at night, put a job on Airtasker, 2 a.m. in the morning, some guy responded, put a bid. The next morning at nine o'clock, he was there at the warehouse so putting good. the bins together. I was so like, good. how good's that? Yeah, I think, I mean... It underscores the the power of like liquidity and being able to connect people up in a in a more liquid manner because I think when you have like a traditional supplier driven supply driven service model, they typically have to put a lot of parameters around uh, what they can offer. So you know if you were going to have a a website and say we offer you know X Y Z service, yeah, you usually have to gonna you're usually going to have to say between nine to five. You have to like price in a premium because you're not always going to be you're not always going to be full. Um, you know, there's just a lot of like parameters you got to put around things. But when you actually just allow it to be fluid and just say, "Hey, I need someone to help me with this," 
then, you know, that person who happens to live next door, happens to have some spare time in the morning and happens to be cruising on Airtasker at 1.30, you know, gets that opportunity, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, w- I was just amazed. There was like probably four or five bids at that time of the night and I was just amazed that there was that amount of people available to do that. So, it was, yeah, it was a really good experience. Awesome, thanks. A lot of us founders, particularly marketplace founders in Australia, look up to you, Tim, and, and look up to Airtasker. And uh, I'm not just saying that to sort of piss in your pocket, but, um, you know, it's amazing what you guys have built. And I think you were one of the pioneers in this sort of wave of marketplaces, call it the sharing economy. Do you still call it that? I think that that, uh, like that overall theme has kind of gone away and people are just looking at the individual businesses now and the individual companies and what they're doing. But I think the theme definitely still exists. Like it's a great concept like use the internet to create a liquid market and make better use of resources that are already there. Like that's such a good theme. So I think it still exists, but people probably aren't using the term so much. Anymore, yeah, right? yeah, we agree. We'll have to come yeah. up with it. a bit 2012. <laughs> <you know>? yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it is such a, a smart idea, such a simple idea. I guess the best ideas are often the simple ones, right? But how did you come up with it and why did you decide on it? So... Back in 2011, I lived in an apartment in the city and I, I was living with like four other guys. It's the worst idea ever to do that, by the way, because basically you can't figure out who left the dishes in the sink. Like that's the biggest problem. You just get all these dishes in the sink and then basically no one ever wants to clean up anything that uh, was made, any mess that was made up by someone else. But anyway, I was living in this apartment. I decided to move out with one of the other guys into a smaller apartment and I asked one of my friends to help me out. He's got a, a business um, selling frozen chicken nuggets. So he's got a, a truck which he uses to do delivery. So I was like, hey, can you help me out? Because you got a truck. You know, what else am I going to either have to rent a truck or hire a removalist or something like that? Um, so he came and helped me move. And this just got us like talking. It's like, why, why, you know, you're a successful business owner. You've got plenty of things to do. And yet I bother you on the weekend to ask you to do something for me when there's so many people out there who would love an opportunity to like make some money. So like, wh- why is that not adding up? And apart from the fact that of course he's got a truck, um, lots of people out there have a truck. And so what we kind of figured out is that it's really like that people don't trust each other in the local economy. And because they don't trust each other, it becomes like a very high cost to connect with someone. You know, like if you're gonna find a babysitter or a, um, or a dog walker, you have to like invest so much time and energy into that. Um, and it's not kind of worth it for a job that might be $200 or even $500, you know. And what that usually results in is that job either goes undone, like it just sits there never getting done, or you go do it yourself and, you know, you're probably not the best person for it and it's inefficient. And so we thought if we could just solve that trust issue, we'd be able to to make something out of that. And so what we saw at the time was that, like, social networks were getting more real. Like, so back in 2012 even – Social networks were much more, much more around like pseudonyms and things like that. But, you know, obviously Facebook was coming into the absolute mainstream, LinkedIn, all of these kinds of things really, you know, starting to get a force behind them. And so we thought it's not unrealistic that you'd be able to create trust using all of this like um, information and then you'd be able to like supplement it with ratings and reviews. And so, yeah, that was the start of why we decided to, to start Airtasker. And w- when you started having those first sort of discussions with investors at that stage, what, what was their sort of reaction? Well, the first person, the first people I actually had to convince were more like uh, my co-founder, Jono. So I had to bring him on the ride and get him excited about it. I also had to convince my roommate. So I lived with a guy who's like a superannuation executive. So pretty conservative, you know, solid returns kind of guy. And he used to just bag out all of my ideas. He'd be like, this is so crap because of X, Y, and Z. 
But actually on this one, he was like, oh, yeah, that's decent. I mean, it, it was like, it'll be super hard for you to do it, but you know, I think it's a good idea. So I had to convince them first, but then, then speaking to some investors and stuff, I guess everyone liked the idea, but everyone thought it was a bit far-fetched. Okay. And so it wasn't that easy to pull in the funding other than the fact that we'd sort of started you know, a startup before with, with Amazim. And so we had a little bit of social cred there, but yeah, it certainly wasn't easy to convince people that we could actually do it. Yeah, okay. What did it feel like in those early days, the, the first few months, the first year? Like, do you remember how many bookings you were getting a day, a week, a month? I know for Spacer, I called Will Davies, uh, CEO of Kinex Store, about a month in. I said, oh, when did you get your first booking? He said, oh, in the first day. It's like, have you? And I was like, oh, I haven't got one yet. <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, have you done your research? Does this thing actually work? So thankfully, eventually we got a booking. <laughs> w- w- when, did that, yeah, when did that Yeah, when did that kick in for you guys? Oh, look, I would say similar amounts of pressure. And I think you'd always feel that pressure of getting the numbers to actually work. And, you know, in hindsight, I wish I could have just enjoyed that, you know, journey and kind of enjoyed those small numbers kind of trickling in. Um, look, I, at the beginning, from day one, we had like sort of, I think about 10 or 15 posted tasks a day, right? Uh, but putting that into perspective, we'd actually like from launching the site and pretty much a month in, we raised about $1.4 million. And back then, and certainly for me, and back then, that was like a crazy amount of money and a crazy amount of pressure. So I think in our first month, we were, we were at a burn rate of 70, 80K a month for, for those first few years. But actually, I remember in one month, we had a single month burn of like 130K and I just had a meltdown. I'm like, holy crap, we're doing 15 posted tasks a day, which translated into like, 10 bucks of revenue or something <laughs> and we're burning 130 and and i definitely would coin a thing that i've seen a lot of entrepreneurs which is that 90 days post launch there's always this wave of like the adrenaline wears off <laughs> and it's suddenly like this is real and how am i going to get the numbers to match you know the burn rate so yeah it was absolutely dismal in those early days and actually it was quite a few years it's probably about two years of you know, the daily numbers hovering, you know, 15, 20, maybe going up to 30, 35. But, you know, it does not feel like a trend. You know, even when you even when you look back on it now and look at that chart, you might be like, oh, yeah, we're steadily going up week on week. But when you kind of empathize with like a human being sitting in the seat and refreshing the numbers every 20 minutes, it definitely <laughs> does not feel like a trend. I, uh, I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, so you spoke about early on raising, you know, a fair chunk of change, 1.4 mil. Mm. I mean... I think from all our experiences, marketplaces are pretty expensive to, to build and, and build that liquidity. Can you share with us sort of how much or sort of uh, some sense of scale of how much you've raised to date and you know, what, what does it take to build a, a large marketplace in Australia? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I, I definitely think marketplaces, you know, as an overall thematic, they do require a lot of capital up front. And I actually um, make the analogy to like infrastructure, like, you know, mobile network or a set of highways that have to be interconnected, you kind of got to invest into at least some sort of min viable highway before, you know, you can start charging a toll for that highway, you know. And Beyond dirt roads? What's that? Beyond dirt roads? Yeah. It's really, yeah, so you just got to invest quite a lot up front. And we kind of knew that, which is why we raised money up front. Uh, I think we could have been leaner, for sure. Even leaner. We were pretty lean, but we could have been even leaner. But anyway, we, we, uh, we raised about 1.4 mil up front. We ended up doing about four or five rounds after that of, of increasing magnitude. Um, and overarchingly, we've raised about $80 million 
of which we're still holding a bunch of that um, a bunch of that capital. But I would say that it it couldn't have been done for too much less than that. A lot of that infrastructure goes a lot of that infrastructure in marketplace parlance is actually spent on customer acquisition because the customers are the nodes in the network that you're building out. And so you obviously have to pay well ahead of the curve to, you know, you gotta pay you gotta pay it forward. So your first customer, you effectively have to build an entire web platform, build native apps on iOS and Android, and your first customer will deliver you two dollars of revenue. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, you can figure out how that maths kind of <laughs> extrapolates out. And and I'm sure your your burn rates sort of increased sort of larger than that one thirty. And yeah, if you're happy to share, you can share what that, like yeah. your largest number got yeah. to. But what, what did that feel like in terms of when you were sort of the stress mm-hmm. level and how did you manage that stress of uh, seeing that burn increase? It's interesting. I think that, first of all, I'd say like we've been on like this amazing run when it comes to like venture money becoming available. You know, it almost desensitizes you a little bit to these numbers. People just go, ah, oh, just, just raise 50 and, you know, smash that out over two years, you know, like, and, you know, it's quite funny because I don't have that much money so it's kind of you know i shouldn't be making statements of that but there's definitely a time between you know 2014 and 2016 i would say where it was like money was coming pretty easily so for us what happened is i guess over time we did steadily increase the burn rate over time so even though we were generating growth it would be generate growth get to the next round get another big lick of uh, funding which gives you even more buffer and so you would be, it becomes logic, it becomes financially rational to like, okay, well, you should deploy more of that so that you're maintaining the same kind of runway. And so we got up to a burn rate in 2019, early 2019 of $2 million a month, which is about 25 million a year, which I think if you zoom out and you look at something like Uber Eats or Deliveroo or something like that is not a huge amount of burn. Yeah, yeah, when you put yeah, it in that yeah. perspective, you're like, oh, well, how much does it cost to build a network in a country? I think they would view it that way. Well, if you spend $100 million to build something meaningful in Australia, no problem, yeah. just go do it. But for us, it was it was pretty big. And actually, our business model was quite different. We didn't have a great engine for turning dollars into growth. Actually, what we had was we had a platform in which we had to invest a lot of like fixed costs into building out this platform and growth from then on basically became free because people just liked the product or we had organic growth channels were driving most of our growth. And so when you're in that situation, you don't want to be burning huge amounts of money because, yeah, the money's not turning into into growth. You can look at that as like a curse in the sense like, ah, oh, I just wish I could get guaranteed 100% growth this year by investing X dollars. That, that predictability you would think would be awesome. But actually, um, you know, conversely, it's actually not awesome because it means that you have to keep spending that money to keep up that kind of growth. Whereas actually, if you have a more of like a platform business, like, you know, I'm not trying to put ourselves in this category, but a Google or a Facebook, it's like there's a fixed cost. You've got to invest a hell of a lot into having the world's best search engine. But once you reach an escape velocity where your revenues exceed how much you got to spend to build that search engine, then it's all very high margin uh, stuff. Um, but it's much harder to do that than than just spend money to make money. Yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. You've got a highly successful business today. Just shifting gears for one moment, but with the benefit of hindsight, what would be some of the decisions that you made over the last eight years that you 
wish you could go back and change you know, from the learning, learnings you had along the way? Yeah, so definitely I feel like there's an element of you're here because you made the decisions that you made and I'm thankful for where we got to. I'm not definitely kind of consistently thinking about how we can do better, how we can do better, but I think objectively if I asked my own self you know, eight years ago, would I be happy with where I am today? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, in terms of advice, I feel like a big risk that founders take is, especially like repeat founders, is they come out of their last mature business, hopefully, you know, being successful, and they move on to the next one. Then they try to solve the same problems they were solving in their more mature business in the new one. And so they would say, oh, the first thing you should go work on people and culture you know <laughs> invest into having the best talent acquisition team invest into like having the best offices because you know that's what you need to solve but i think really you have to go back and be like no solve for sales again <laughs> and then go back through that same journey and eventually end up on solving people and culture but i would i would um, that said i probably would have invested much more into like talent acquisition uh, much earlier on like maybe not necessarily even a person but invested into that process like principles and structure around who you need in your team and how you're going to choose the people that are going to join you on the journey really thinking that through that'd be one uh, the other one more pragmatic for us is there are a couple of organic growth channels like seo that um you can be impatient in the early days and you're like i just want to get 50 percent growth in the next three months and so you end up that sways you towards things like performance marketing whereas I think if you've got the patience and you know that what you're working on is right, you can work on some of these slower organic growth machines a bit earlier on. So. Yeah, cool. And um, how, how big is your team today? Uh, so we're about 150 in Australia, about 100, and in Manila, about 50. Yeah, okay. And, and how quickly did you get to that sort of, that sort of size? So the first two years of Airtasker, we were a team of seven or eight and we kind of just stayed at a team of seven or eight uh, the whole time. It was kind of like min viable, uh, min viable team. We kind of went through another stage where we were kind of at like 30 to 50 for about three years. And, you know, that was kind of like a step change uh, growth curve. And then in the last two years or so, or three years, we've grown from sort of 50 to 100. So that was yeah, wow. a, bigger, a bigger bump. But definitely learning in terms of like I really do believe in that adage of like hire slow um, and fire fast. Like you've really got to manage the quality of the team. Um, and it's scary when people are growing, like, you know, just doubling teams. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Um, the consequence of that, it, it gets messy really, really fast. Yeah, right. Uh, and, the, and the breakdown of that team, like what does that sort of split look like? Is it mostly development or? Yeah, so we're about 75% of the team in Australia would be product and engineering. On top of that, we've got around 10, oh, we have about 15 in growth. Um, and the, re the rest would be people ops, finance, and, and um, my team. Yeah, CEO's cool. cool. team. But it, it's, it is mainly product and engineering focused because that's where all the, I guess, the growth comes from. Like we always found... Um, that whatever we wanted to do, it ended up being, oh, okay, so we need to get the engineers to go and build this. So we've optimized for that. Yeah, okay. Okay, so switching slides now and talking about sort of marketing channels and that sort of stuff. And I guess you're now mentioning about sort of changes to the product. Sort of what do you think, maybe give some examples of marketing channels that work really well or what maybe some product changes that you made that sort of impacted your growth? Yeah, so one really interesting thing that we're, we keep thinking about now is how intertwined product and growth really are. And actually, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of growth, a lot of growth marketers kind of want to have 
that there's a common complaint. Ah, oh, if you know, if only we could go in and change this thing about the product, all our channels be working are better. And on the other hand, the product people are kind of like, hey, how come we're not, you know, just getting the numbers, the runs on the board? And what we kind of figured out is even from the very genesis of a product, you want to be thinking about growth day one. Like you want to be thinking about like how is that product actually going to go and gather customers? And so you're asking that product manager or that growth manager to think about that whole life cycle day one. Some of the things that we've been working on recently, um, so one would be we've just started uh, launching out instant booking into a bunch of categories. So traditionally Airtask was post a task, receive a couple of quotes, pick uh, one of those quotes. And what we realized is in order to go and address deeper channels, such as product partnerships or performance marketing, we needed a product that could actually convert at a higher rate. And so instant booking does two things. One, it helps us convert at a higher rate. So it opens up a bunch of channels to be more profitable, but it also creates a much better and faster customer experience. So that's a good example of a product which was designed, one, to create a better customer experience, but two, to literally open up more channels. The second thing for us is really thinking about, you know, what is holistically Airtasker's product channel fit? And for us, we know that the first place people, people search for problems that they have around services is Google. And so one of our, the pillars of our customer experience vision is to make Airtasker really easy to find. Uh, we just want to you know, provide the content, provide all the guidance so that we can be at the top of that funnel. So when you're looking for something, you'll find it on Airtasker. And yeah, like I said, that was a channel that we didn't invest into for the first six and a half years of Airtasker. Um, yeah, okay. But one that wow. you know, now we're investing into heavily and is, is looking super exciting. And so I'm sure many people have seen sort of the, the Airtasker ads on TV. And I think you've also done some stuff on the buses. Like how effective did you find that? And was that just more about building a brand or did you see sort of direct growth when you had those ads play? I mean, there's definitely a combination of like direct growth and uh, brand, I guess, halo and perception and stuff like that. First of all, I'd say above the line marketing is super, super expensive. And it's the only, like I would only do that at the very top of like your growth pyramid, you know, where at the bottom would be get the product right. You know, then a layer on top of that would be like get basic channels like search, hygiene, working, then do messaging. But I do think that above the line, like so from a acquisition perspective, it's absolutely at the top of your, you know, at the top of your pyramid and the ROIs are pretty close to unjustifiable, I'd say in terms yeah. of like direct acquisition. But in terms of building out a brand and becoming a household brand, I'd say that there's no other real way you can do it yet. You know, like you can spam Instagram and YouTube like, a lot with a lot of video ads and things like that, but I don't think it has the same impact as uh, outdoor uh, marketing. We did a lot on in outdoor on the tube in the UK, but you know also signage in Australia and a TVC was just wow, like it just had this huge. We went from zero percent to twenty two percent unprompted brand awareness like overnight. Yeah, right. Um, and and that does make definitely it's it's a huge piece of the infrastructure which just keeps paying yeah, um, yeah, yeah. over time. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it if it's your only marketing budget. It's not going to be. What kind of budget would you say a startup needs to, to really have a go at above the line? I mean, if they have a couple hundred grand, is, it, is that just throwing money in the bin? It's interesting. In Australia, I'd probably say so. Like, I think um, there have been companies like Koala who have done it really well. You know, like they've, they've put up a sign outside IKEA. They make the outdoor marketing a PR stunt and then they amplify the hell out of that on social. I think you can do 
tactical types of above the line. Yeah, but they, they've done it so well. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah. it's unbelievable. You know, they did the Clive Palmer, you know, rip off ad. They, totally. Um, you know, I don't think they leveraged the bushfires, but they definitely, you know, uh, did a campaign that was, you know, useful for donating to the bushfires and 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 for Koala too. Um, so I think you can definitely do some things with above, the, but I think when we're talking about above the line, we're talking about actually using the medium to hit customers, and I think that is yeah you need to have millions not not hundreds of thousands i think um even production budgets you know you should be spending 20 to 30 percent of your budget on on production and you know making a tv ad would easily cost you half a million dollars yeah right that's crazy isn't it yeah that's what i mean about getting desensitized about money because <laughs> when i talk about money in my own life i'm like oh my god that's so much money in fact i got a funny story about it. when we were filming our first tv ad they had some babies in the ad. And first of all, I was like, these babies don't really, they're not really part of the storyline. Why do we have them? And I got the production bill and they said it was five grand like talent fees for the, these babies who say nothing and aren't even part of the storyline. <laughs> and then below that, it had another line item, which was backup babies, um, oh, no. $5,000. And I said, why are we having backup? And they're like, oh, well, the first babies are crying. Like, you know, we've got this massive production going on we just got to be able to swap them out with another baby i'm just like this is crazy like i really that logic around we need backup babies that's where i started to say this has gone crazy. too far <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's next the talking horse <laughs> and so you mentioned about the uk there sort of you've expanded outside of australia now is the uk the only market in uh, we're in the uk and in ireland oh, excellent well. yeah. excellent and what sort of led you to sort of expand out outside of australia so it's a really good point. I think so. I think that's kind of the reason why having like founder CEOs is really good because you know they're generally going to be looking at like what's the next big thing on the on the horizon. And I definitely don't think you can put it down to any like real logical rationale. You know, it's kind of like the same as why did you start Airtask? It's like I don't know. I thought it'd be cool. <laughs> you know, and now I've put eight years of my life into it. But it's kind of similar with UK. And, and you know, obviously we did a lot more research and analysis to kind of pick the countries and then you know, set aside capital to be able to go and do it. Um, but I guess the jumping off the cliff bit is the irrational bit. And we thought that it was the right time to do it and we're investing so much into a platform. We realized we're a platform company um, where all of the costs are fixed costs anyway. Yeah, um, so we yeah. thought let's leverage it into new markets. Yeah, awesome. And have there been any sort of um, good learnings that you've had as you've sort of gone into those markets? Oh, for sure. I mean, we, we've done almost a full pivot in the UK. We started out with a high burn, win at all costs um, kind of mentality and have actually almost 180 that to a, hold on, why don't we just start from the bottom up and look at every dollar we're spending and how to get the best ROI on that? I guess that came from a study of if we looked at Uber and Deliveroo, you know, it was a, it's a lot more of a win at all cost mentality because they were fighting head to head with somebody and, you know, it was either them... Or, 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 or Uber. Yes, yeah. But in the case of Airtask, uh, those competitive dynamics don't exist. And I think the main thing would be you only blitzscale if you need to blitzscale, like only if you're forced to blitzscale. Otherwise, you don't want to be blitzscaling. Um, and so we definitely took that to heart and we're definitely more on a uh, profitable growth trajectory now. In fact, UK and Ireland are already profitable because we basically only invest into our core platform and they're, they're generating... Yeah, cool. cool. And is, does that mean having teams in Australia and Manila then looking after those regions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, we've tried to um, embed as much of it as we can into it, like the centralized you know, machine or, or platform. 
but there are some elements of localization which are important. Um, for example, content backlinking. Yeah. Um, so reaching out to like local, you know, PR and stuff like that. And then consumer PR. So those are the elements which we've still localized. We have people on the ground to do those. But what we what we found was really bad was setting up a structure where the people overseas were getting constantly hamstrung by technical development. Like, and it's a common theme you have here. I know the guys who are started some some of the international you know satellite businesses offer off a core one and it's just impossible to get prioritized you know it's impossible to prioritize a small upcoming country in the list of development features that need to be made um against you know against yeah, the the bigger region, the yeah. hq yeah yeah um, priorities. So, so how did you how did you get around that so we now have a growth team dedicated to the uk but based in australia and sitting with their own team of engineers who are all got an OKR around get the UK up and running. So basically aligning product and engineering with the the local growth team, but doing it all in one office. Yeah, cool. Um, what have been some of the unexpected surprises along your journey, both good and bad? Every every day is a, <laughs> every a roller coaster. Day is a, a bit of a surprise, and yeah, I mean that. Like in when you're looking in hindsight, you're like. It looks all smooth and, and clean, but every day was really was really a big thing. Maybe I'll have a think about that one and come back to you yeah, sure. um, on the surprises. Yeah. You've been listening to Founders on Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.